Often our greatest times of spiritual growth happen during our greatest times of crisis. It's an unfortunate truth that often our greatest times of spiritual growth happen in our greatest times of spiritual crisis. You remember uh, my friend Eric Little, a Scottish missionary to China in the 1930s. He ran a couple races once in the Olympics, I think. But um, in 1937, Eric was ministering in China during the Japanese invasion of China at that time. And things got crazy, and they got crazy fast, and it was bad. And the population was, well, in his words, he says this, fear reigns in all their hearts. And if you haven't been there, you will be there. Where something unsettling happens, and it could be geopolitical, national, you know, pandemic, could be something big like that, or it could be something relatively small. A circumstance in your life, you know, a a test result from the doctor, a, a difficulty in a family, struggles in a marriage. And fear could reign in our hearts because we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we've got that uncertainty. What will happen? What will they do? What, what should I do? What if this happens? What if that happens, right? And in those moments, we have an opportunity to trust God and walk by faith. But man, it's hard to do. And in those moments, it's often a battle to walk by faith, to trust God. And so we need to argue with ourselves and be reminded with help from others as to why God is faithful and why we should trust him in the midst of whatever that that up or down really is. And in our passage this morning, we have like a a quick, you know, snapshot of four different kings, one king of Judah and then three kings of Israel. As we walk through this passage, though, it's kind of rare for them to be just this brief in, in the run of kings. And There's an intentionality, I think, here with the author to say, listen, here's the deal. You need to see all this stuff going on, and most of it is not necessarily good or helpful, but there is one constant running behind all of this up and down and all the change and the instability and all the rest. There's one constant, and it's the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. And this is that time for us. So if you have your Bibles there, we're looking at 2 Kings 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. And like I said, we'll get four different kings uh, described here, but we'll, we'll walk through them each one at a time, and I think we'll see some important takeaways for us spiritually. So here we go in 2 Kings 15 and verse 1. And there uh, the authors write, In the 27th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Azariah, son of Amaziah, became king of Judah. All right, Azariah became king of Judah. Azariah, you probably know him more as Uzziah uh, from, the, from the book of Isaiah. And if you don't know about all the ayahs, it's okay. We're just dealing with basically this one today. Um, and just take my word for it, Azariah and Uzziah are a lot closer in Hebrew than they are in English. So just, you know, there we go. But uh, this king, he was, uh, well, verse 2, he was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. Azariah did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. Yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. The Lord afflicted the king, and he had a serious skin disease until the day of his death. He lived in quarantine. That means a lot more now than it did a year ago, if I'd read that. He lived in quarantine while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. 
The rest of the events of Azariah's reign, along with all his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Azariah rested with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. His son Jotham became king in his place. What do we need to know about Azariah or Uzziah? We, we get this really short description here. The shocking thing really about this description is what's not included. Okay, Uzziah, the longest reigning king in the southern kingdom, 52 years. A time of, if you're just kind of stepping back, and if we were watching a documentary on this time period in Israel's history, in Judah's history, Uzziah would be the, the main focus. I mean, it was his reign that was the most stable relatively since the days of David and Solomon. And so you'd think there's so much there. But in reality, what's significant is not so much the length of his reign or even the so-called successes of his reign materially. I mean, he had building projects and his long reign resulted in stability for Judah. But that's not what's noted here. In general, we get the the note that he uh, did what was right in the Lord's sight as his father Amaziah had done to a degree. But he still didn't finish the job. He didn't deal with those high places. People were still worshiping in the Canaanite fashion at those high places, which was not good. And then in verse 5, we get that interesting note that the Lord afflicted him with a serious skin disease and he died. I mean, for the last uh, 10 years, we find out in Second Chronicles, he spent his last 10 years in quarantine and then, he, and then he died. Well, what's going on here? Well, the fact is that there are a lot of things in Uzziah's reign that we would naturally take pride in. And I think be like, yeah, like these are things resume worthy, like significant things that he had accomplished. But from a biblical perspective or from a spiritual perspective, there's really not that much to those worldly successes. Really, that what's significant is he generally did what was right in God's sight, which he was generally spiritually healthy, which was good. But at the same time, he didn't really finish the job. He did not deal with those high places. And as we find out from Second Chronicles, he actually had a pretty pretty significant spiritual failure that led to him getting that skin condition from the Lord. He thought he could take the the position of a priest. And he thought that because he was so successful. And so he actually went and went to offer, uh, make a... a, um, a, uh, an offering in the temple as a priest, uh, the incense offering. And the priests then confronted him and they said, you're not worthy, you're not holy, you're not sanctified to offer that sacrifice. And he said, basically, I'm so successful, I can do what I want. And the Lord immediately at that moment struck him with that sickness. And so behind the, the long reign and the material success was this fundamental sin of arrogance and pride. Uzziah thought he had it all figured out. He thought he was worthy. There are three warnings for us, I think, as we see the short description of Azariah or Uzziah's reign here. The first is the warning against arrogance and pride. And if, if we are successful in our daily lives, in our school, with our grades and how we do with our schooling, or in our careers and advancement there, or in the raising of our families and all of that, right? If we're going to be successful, or if we are successful in that, there will naturally be a temptation to, to be proud and to be arrogant. But you just got to know that 52 years of worldly success didn't amount to much in the sight of the authors of 2 Kings 15. And maybe it's worth just mentioning that, you know what, my spiritual heritage and legacy is more significant than my vocation or how much money I leave to my kids or what happens with my grades and which school I get into There's a warning here against arrogance and pride. Of course, pride is what? It's actually just faith in self. It's just, I got this. And you can almost, I mean, it's not hard to picture Uzziah, the king, the very successful king, comes marching into the temple, right? He says, I got this. I'm going to offer the incense offering today. And the priests are going, 
what is happening? But his pride was driving the bus. We just have to be careful that in those moments when we do have success, that we don't give in to that that's faith in self, where we think, you know, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Second warning here with Uzziah, with Uzziah is a warning against discontentment. And again, this guy, he refused to listen, at least to the priests. He refused to deal with the high places, which is a lingering issue. We'll get to that in a second. But he also refused to listen to the priests when they confronted him. And we don't get the backstory here, but we, just, we know that the Lord dealt with this, uh, this discontentment by giving him that skin condition. He thought he could do it, and he said, you know what, I want to do something else. I want to be the next thing. And he just kept wanting to maybe, maybe just make his reign more significant. And so I'll do this. You know, it's unusual for a king to take the role as priest. It's not only unusual, it's unheard of. The only king to ever do that, kind of, is King David. And that was under extremely special circumstances when that happened. The fact is, kings were not qualified to serve as priests. The king's job was what? Somebody help me. The king's job was to reign, right? To rule, to to make decisions, to lead the people. The priest's job is to mediate for the people, between the people and God, to offer sacrifice. But the king was not qualified to do this role because the king was not set apart in the same way that priests were. Priests, their clothing was set apart, their schedules were set apart, their toothbrushes were set apart, okay? I mean, everything about them was set apart for that priestly service. The king, it was a different role. The king was still anointed to fulfill that role, but this king was discontent in this spot. And he said, you know, I want that spot too. And then the Lord gives him that judgment. I mean... The discontentment of Uzziah, it's because it was what's driving his desire to take that role. The fact is, there is a son of David who is qualified to serve as both king and priest. I mean, here's the reality, right? We get, we get to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, and he is the king over all kings, which means he has authority in our lives. He has the authority to call us to specific action to say, I call you to repent and believe and to change and to stop doing this and to start doing this. But not only that, Jesus makes provision for us as he is our high priest, our mediator. He is qualified. He is holy in every aspect of his being, holy enough to not just offer a sacrifice for us, but to be the sacrifice for us. And we have to be careful because in discontentment, often we want to call the shots. We want to be the king or queen. And we want to make our own mediation. We think we're, we're good enough to offer the sacrifice. Or maybe in despair, we think I'll never be good enough. And in discontentment, we don't actually receive the grace of God. We stiff-arm God's grace. Well, the third warning from Uzziah's reign, and maybe that's the most relevant here to, to the, the details of 2 Kings 15, is the warning to persevere. Okay, the warning to persevere. The, the lingering issue of the high places, is it bothering you? Because it's bothering me, okay? Like every week we're getting to this thing where it's like, oh, the king did what was right, and the Lord said, except for with the high places. And then the next king, just like his father, he did what was right, and the, but except for the high places. Because the high places are this just, it's a bad habit of idolatry. And whether they were claiming to worship Yahweh, which sometimes on high places, that would have been what was going on. They would have been claiming to worship the true God, but worshiping him in Canaanite ways. So that's not okay. It wasn't acceptable in God's sight. But nonetheless, people were confused and they mixed up their, their neighbor's Canaanite religion with their own and, and they got it all confused. Or sometimes they would go to those high places and they would flat out worship Canaanite gods and goddesses. And so, you know, either way, the, the lingering issue of those high places means 
If we're going to walk the walk of faith in the midst of all kinds of different circumstances, we've got to play to the final whistle. We've got to continue and persevere. And that means persevering in faith when, hey, long reign, success, you've got you to persevere. There's still the need to maintain that, that uh, vigilance over your worship. Right? What do you value? Your, your uh, watch over your soul for looking for idolatry, quickness to repent of sin, to confess and repent. Right? We've got to be vigilant for that. So we've got to stay on that game when times are good, but then also when times aren't so good. And in both of those different you know, kinds of circumstances, the ups and the downs, there's a need to persevere. That's true individually, right? Uh, man, we get there. You know, um, guys, some of us working in our, our jobs, and it, you know, it's just hard. Sometimes there are long days. Sometimes the job isn't as good as it was, and things change at work, and there's all these you know, d- different dynamics. And sometimes it's just hard to trust the Lord and keep walking by faith in that job. Mother's Day, moms, I mean, I don't have to tell you. <laughs> I mean, there's so many days when it's so hard to be a mom, and you're fighting the battles of uh, when they're little of diapers and laundry, when they're bigger of laundry and laundry, and uh, you know, you got, I mean, it's just hard, the the emotional burden of being a mom and caring for those kids. I mean, school, when you're at school, no matter how old you are, you're going through elementary school, junior high, high school, college, whatever, right? You're working through these classes, and you're dealing with the dynamics of the friends and the teachers, and there's a need to persevere by faith, right? In all the different individual circumstances, good times and bad, we need to persevere. And Uzziah sadly didn't, and his reign didn't end well. He didn't persevere in the faith. But the fact is, we also need this reminder corporately, I think, to persevere. Because there's pressure on us. Individually, we're all facing it, and then there's just kind of garden variety cultural pressure on the church to compromise the message, to change it, to make it more palatable to the world at large. In some cases, to, to not worship. Like, you know, there's other things that are more important than gathering for worship. I mean, we're, we're facing that, right? Why, why can't we just redefine certain things? Like, why can't we recast marriage differently? And why can't we just edit out those parts of the Bible that we don't agree? Like, there's pressure on the church. And so we, as a collective body, need to heed the warning here in Isaiah's, you know, lack of perseverance and say, you know what, we're going to persevere together. Like, we're going to go together and support one another in the battle of faith. I can guarantee you this. We all are facing ups and downs. But I also can guarantee you that they're at different times. And so when you are experiencing a blessing in your life, there's going to be somebody else that needs an encouragement. And God has gifted us with each other to walk together in perseverance. I don't like the high places. And, and we shouldn't like the high places. We need to love one another well enough to say, you know what, let's persevere together. What does that look like? It looks like investing in personal relationship with somebody you know, engaging and and encouraging one another and following Jesus. We call that discipleship, but all that is is just saying, hey, let's follow Jesus. Let's get better at following Jesus together. Maybe it's in a Bible study where it's like, finally, you're like, I need to make time for that Bible study because I need the help. Maybe it's engaging in that care group, you know, sustaining one another with prayer and building those relationships with others in the body, but we got to go together. We got to insist on persevering, and you know what? Let's insist on dealing with the high places, and we're not just going to let them be. Now, Listen, the ups and downs, okay, that we face, they, they can be distracting, right? So Isaiah, his reign was mostly up, but it ended down, and he, he failed to persevere in the faith. As we shift gears and focus on the northern kingdom in verse 8, we see how distracting sometimes the, the ups and downs can be and how they can actually derail us. Watch verse 8 
there in, in 2 Kings 15. In the 38th year of Judah's king Azariah, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria for six, six months. 52 years for Uzziah, six months for Zechariah in the north. Something's going on. Verse 9, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, as his predecessors had done. He did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Verse 10, Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah. He struck him down publicly, killed him, and became king in his place. As for the rest of the events of Zechariah's reign, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. The word of the Lord that he spoke to Jehu was, Four generations of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel, and it was so. Here's what's going on. This part of 2 Kings 15 is all about 2 Kings 10. In 2 Kings 10, after Jehu was faithful to execute God's judgment against the house of Jezebel and Ahab, you remember that was a very uncomfortably bloody scene when all that went down, God promised Jehu, and he said, Jehu, I will give you four generations of your, of your sons that will, that will reign as king over Israel. And so that was what the Lord had promised. And so here with Zechariah taking the reign, he, uh, taking the, the kingship and reigning, right, he was the fourth generation from Jehu. So he was the fulfillment of God's promise, which is a nice subtle reminder as we walk through all the historical kind of details of the faithfulness of God in the midst of what was a very unstable time. You want to talk about instability? Six-month reigns. Those are unstable, okay? Public executions are also, and assassinations are also a sign of instability in a culture, right? There's a problem there when, when this guy feels the shalom, right? He feels um, warranted to attack the king and to execute the king, and it just shows there was unrest. In their, their, people were nervous, and, and they were scared, and yet all the while, the authors just tell us in verse 12, it was the word of the Lord that had come to pass when Zechariah became king, although it was only for six months. The fact that he wore the crown was a reminder of God's faithfulness. Now, that really short reign leads to another, even shorter reign. Shockingly, verse 13. In the 39th year of Judah's king Uzziah, Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king. He reigned in Samaria a full month. I mean, the standards get, I mean, you know, I, what do we say about that? It's, it's, a, it's a, just a month. This guy was not a good guy. Then Menahem, son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah to Samaria and struck down Shalom, son of Jabesh there. He killed him and became king in his place. Two assassinations in a row. As for the rest of the events of Shalom's reign, along with the conspiracy that he formed, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Okay, let's just pause here. We've got two really short reigns, a lot of instability. A couple lessons here for us. The first is that through all the ups and downs, God's faithfulness is the one constant. We get the reminder of the prophecy about Jehu and his descendants because we need that reminder that guess what? Even when things seem so crazy and when people are getting assassinated and all the culture is turned upside down, you just got to know that God's word abides, that he is faithful. And yet, it's going to get crazy sometimes. And frankly, we've experienced more craziness than I think we ever thought we'd have to. But the fact is, it's going to get crazy. God is still faithful. His faithfulness abides. By the way, His faithfulness is not only seen in Zechariah taking the throne. 
his faithfulness is also seen probably in Zechariah's uh, assassination. Because in the prophet Hosea, in his book, Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, there is a prophetic word spoken against Jehu because of his basically taking the violence a little too far in executing God's judgment. And so the promise was, okay, Jehu, you were faithful to do what I asked you to do. On the one hand, I'll give you four generations of, of kings, but on the other hand, you took it too far, and so there will be judgment. And so that's why it's only four generations, and so Zechariah is assassinated, probably in fulfillment of Hosea 1.4, at least partially. What does that teach us? Well, it tells us, first of all, that in the midst of the upheaval, God is trustworthy. And secondly, especially when we are experiencing less than stellar circumstances, when we've been wronged, uh, when people have been unfaithful, when we're getting stabbed in the back, when people let us down, when we're sinned against, that God is faithful and He is the only trustworthy judge. I mean, it was a long time ago, but 2 Kings 15, back to 2 Kings 10, I mean, that's a long time, you know, in, in, in the terms of four generations. And so that's, that's a ways back. But God is faithful. He remembers what Jehu had done, and he remembered what he promised to do in response. And sometimes, you know, we have lingering doubt. God, what are you doing? How can you even work in this? Or maybe lingering bitterness or anger at the Lord or at others. Like, Lord, I... Why can't we just, you know, get them? And I guess in this passage, there's an argument to be made that that faith-driven patience is warranted. That we can, well, in the words of of Peter, in 1 Peter 2, we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, right? And we can say, Lord, if I was king, I'd do it this way, but you're king. So help me trust you. In the midst of this wrong that I've experienced or that I've seen someone else has experienced, We've talked about it a lot recently, but our culture, we're grasping for justice, and we just, on every angle, we just don't, we don't get it. We misunderstand, right? We, 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 we abuse it. And here, there's just this reminder that not only is God's faithfulness that one constant, but because He's so faithful, He's trustworthy even when we've been wronged. We should entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Now, with the, with the rest of the, you know, the back and forth with Zechariah's short reign leading to, to Shalom's short reign, we also get this reminder that without faith, instability can cripple you. So think of it this way. When, when everything's getting wild and crazy, and they're, when they're assassinating the king in the streets, okay, it's getting crazy, all right, just in case we need a barometer for that, right? So there it is. But when things are getting really crazy, if we don't have faith, what are we going to do? We're going to panic. We're going to freak out. And depending on your personality, that's going to take you in different directions. Some of you are going to build a bomb shelter in your backyard. You're going to clean out Costco, right? And you're going to be ready, right? You're going to be ready for it. Some of us are going to hightail it to the south as fast as we can because everything seems better in Florida. I don't know if it is, but it seems like it is. So, you know, worst case, we can barricade ourselves in Disney World and like that would be, you know, that would be an option, you know? But I mean, listen, without faith, when up and down. You're going to be riding that roller coaster, and you're going to respond, and the circumstances are going to change, and you're going to be riding that wave. And you know what? When circumstances change, your emotions go with it, and they're freaking out, and you're, you're angry, you're, you're sad, you're happy, you're down, like all this, you know, bouncing around like a ping pong ball in some ways, emotionally. Without faith, that instability is crippling, and yet all the while, there's the steady baseline of God saying, I am here. He is, he is worthy of our faith. I mean, there it is. 
all this other stuff going on, he, he is worthy of our faith. During long reigns of success, he's worthy. And during a six-month reign, he's worthy. During a one-month reign, he's worthy. He's worthy to be trusted. Sometimes we tie our, our ideal of joy and peace to our circumstances. Like, we don't have joy and we don't feel like we're at peace unless we have finances in the bank account and we've done well in our grades and somebody likes us and we've, you know, got the, going to the next phase of the romantic relationship or whatever. And our, our experiential right, articulation of joy or peace, it's all tied to our circumstances. So when we're doing great, we're, we're joyful. And when we're not doing great, we're not, right? Like that. In other cases, though, we have to struggle with the, the emotional response to the circumstances. Here's the deal about your emotions. They do show you like what you want. So they're, they're kind of like a, a warning flag or an indicator, like this is what you, you're really passionate about, or this is what you're afraid of. Like that's what they kind of let, let you know. They tip you off to that. But your emotions are not a guide for you. They're not meant to be the guide for your behavior because all the while well, your emotions are going crazy and, and you can't stop them. But what you can do is you can respond to them by looking at God and his faithfulness. And yes, everybody else might be freaking out and your emotions might be telling you to freak out, but God says, I'm right here. I promised Jehu four reigns. He got four reigns. I said I would deal with the, the sin. I've dealt with this. You know, I mean, there's his faithfulness is what we're banking on, right, in our response. He's worthy even when we're threatened. And that's where our passage ends up this morning. Watch verse 16 down to the end here in verse 22. At that time, so we're still dealing with, dealing with the northern kingdom. At that time, starting from Tirzah, Menahem attacked Tifzah, all who were in it, in its territory, because they wouldn't surrender. He ripped open all the pregnant women. Okay, this is really bad. Tirzah is a, uh, was a rival capital city for the northern kingdom. And um, you just need to know at this moment that this guy, Menahem, he set up shop at Tirzah. And again, with all the instability, they, they said, you know what, forget D.C. We're just going to make Trenton the capital of the whole thing. Okay, bad idea on several levels. But, uh, you know, so that, that's the deal. He sets up a rival capital and he says, this is the deal. I'm going to reign from here. And he even ventured up into what is essentially a Syrian territory. I'll show you in just a minute. Hang on on that. And this guy was bad, though. That line at the end there, it's so uncomfortable. He's, you know, attacking these pregnant women and ending their pregnancies. It's like, that's what you expect from the Assyrians or the Babylonians. You don't expect that from Israelites. But man, it's so ugly. Watch verse 17. In the 39th year of Judah's king Azariah, Menahem, son of Gadi, became king over Israel after assassinating Shalom, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, not surprising. Throughout his reign, he did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Verse 19, then King Pul of Assyria invaded the land. So Menahem gave Pul 75,000 pounds of silver so that Pul would support him to strengthen his grasp on the kingdom. Okay, you probably remember Pul by his more academic name, Tiglath Pileser III. Um, so let me just clear that, that little. Let's show, him the, let's show him the map. I don't know how to get there. We got to show him the map. Uh, let's show them, Lauren. I'm going to show them uh, the Assyrian kingdom here. Okay, so here's, here's the Assyrian Empire, all right? Here's Jerusalem. Here's Samaria. Tirzah is right, like, on the L in Israel right there, okay? Just work with me. But Menahem had ventured up, and he had actually attacked, attacked Tifsa, which is up here uh, near this, uh, this area. And so the Assyrian—now, listen, the Assyrian Empire at this time 
Pole or Tiglath-Pileser III, he uh, instituted a revitalization of the Assyrian Empire. And so they came to town, maybe because Menahem had attacked, but for other reasons as well. They came to town to solidify the southern border. And he said, you know, I'm just going to take all this anyway. I'm just going to take it. And so he came to basically force Israel and later Judah into submission. And so at this time, the focus is on Israel. So he comes to town, and Menahem is under threat, and Israel is under threat from the Assyrian war machine. And I'm just telling you, when it comes to unsettling circumstances, this is a big one, okay? The largest military force of its day, the most brutal military force of its day, has come to town to take over. They desperately need help. They are under threat. And this is the solution of Menahem. He says, you know what? Let's pay them off. And so, verse 19, Paul comes, and so he, he gave... Paul gave him 75,000 pounds of silver so that the Assyrians would leave and so that they would back Menahem's claim to the throne, which apparently anybody could claim the throne in the northern kingdom at this point just by killing somebody. So, you know, that's going on. So he needs to solidify his, 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 uh, his grab on the power of the northern kingdom. Verse 20, then Menahem, he passes that, you know, cost right on to the people. Then Menahem exacted 20 ounces of silver from each of the prominent men of Israel to give to the king of Assyria so that the king of Assyria withdrew and did not stay there in the land. Ah, Menahem says, I've rescued us from the threat. My negotiations were successful. And so now, by you paying this little tax, we've been able to, to get rid of the Assyrian attackers and I have secured our future. Is that what would happened? Of course not. The Assyrians are going to be back. And they're going to bring an end to the northern kingdom, actually. But Menahem thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just, I'll buy my way to peace and strength and prosperity. Verse 21 just kind of wraps up the details. The rest of the events of Menahem's reign, along with all of his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Menahem rested with his ancestors, and his son Pekahiah became king in his place. Listen, God is the only one worthy of our faith. And here's the fact. Faith is the only right response when we're threatened. Faith is the only right response to threat, to being threatened. On the macro level, right, we, we see big threats. War, elections, uh, economic, you know, downfalls, like massive swings like that, natural disasters, the pandemic. These are, these are macro big threats. But guess what? The only right response to, to any of those threats is faith. It's God, what have you called me to? Who are you? What does it look like for me to persevere in faith right now? But we also face micro threats. And sometimes the micro threats are actually worse because they're bigger in our minds, right? Because they, they're more directly impacting our lives. Job loss, a broken relationship, family trouble, issues in the marriage, issues with kids, you know, sickness on a small scale. All of that, right? Those are, those are micro threats, but man, they can fill our hearts with fear and yet the same is true. Our response must be not to pay off the Assyrian invader, but rather to trust the Lord. Do you want to know what's crazy about this whole thing? In Deuteronomy, God promised Israel. He said, when the threats come, turn to me and I will deliver you. He had said it. But they thought, I don't, Menhem, I don't see it. I don't see the Lord getting us out of this jam. I mean, his view of God was, it was so small. So we got to raise the money, is what he said. We got to pay him off. I wonder, what is it for you? 
the threat where you feel like God is too small to answer it. It really could be anything. You know what it is, though, because it's the thing you're most afraid of. And it's the thing that you forget that God has promised to provide you when you're in the midst of it. You forget that God has promised to provide for you when you're facing it. And you turn to self. You, you turn to, maybe it is money. It's just, I'm just going to buy my way out of it. Maybe you turn to, to worldly wisdom. You turn to consent of your peers. There's so many different places we can go. But you know what's always true and hasn't changed? He is worthy of our faith. He's worthy. It doesn't mean you don't respond to the threat responsibly, but there's a difference. There's a difference between trusting in the money, right, and trusting the Lord. This guy, Menahem, his brutality against the unborn, there's a couple things I need to say about that. On the one hand, it's a mark of his worldliness, okay, that he would do that. Because we expect that out of the Assyrians. We don't expect that out of an Israelite. He does that. It's really bad. It's, by the way, a side note, it is a warning sign to a culture that increasingly is okay with ending the lives of the unborn. Okay, it's not okay. And it doesn't matter how much you sanitize it or clean it up, all right? It's a problem. It's butchery, and it's meant to be seen as that in this passage. You're supposed to read it and be like, oh, no, that is not okay. So we need to understand. Now, by God's grace, we can, we can live in and minister to a culture that believes that that's sometimes an appropriate thing to do, right? And so we're called to do that and to rely on God's grace. Again, in the ups and downs, doing what? Trusting Him by faith. And even, shockingly, moving forward with forgiveness when we failed in those areas. Because in this case, you know, God's not just saying, I'm faithful, let me punish you. He's saying, I'm faithful, trust me. Turn to me. Believe in me. There's a warning here against worldliness. You might just keep an eye on yourself for worldly behavior, worldly ways of thinking, where it's just not, it's not agreeing with the Scriptures. It's not consistent with what you know God has said. Maybe you don't know what God has said, so ask for help. What has God called me to in my career and my relationship with this person I'm dating? What has He called me to with my attitude towards this or that? And, and figure out, am I just living a worldly life, or am I actually trusting the only one who's worthy to be trusted? He is worthy. And it's, you get this impression in the passage, and we're going to get there in 2 Kings, where we will see God deliver from the Assyrian threat. Okay, spoiler alert, 2 Kings 18, 19. We're getting there. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. When we get to that point, you will look back at this passage, and you will be so sad for how little Menahem thought of God. God's saying, Watch what I can do. And Menahem says, no thanks. I got it. That's where pride gets us. Where we think we have it all figured out. And we are not, in humility, reliant on God. And what happens when we do that? God delivers. It's His faithfulness, right? It's God delivering that's on display. This is what happens with the greater son of David, Jesus. You're reading in the Gospels, Jesus interacts with all these people, and they're all facing all kinds of different threats in their lives of of different degree and scale. And you see Jesus, and what do we see Jesus do? We see Jesus take time with children and with women and with Gentiles. It was not not the, uh, the normal thing to do, to value those on the lower end of the social scale. And he says, let's elevate them. He says, these people are important to me. And so he just took time to be with them. 
and to teach the kids. And to, by the way, we're going to have a sign up for nursery duty, okay? So I'm just going to put that out there, right? But it's like, I'm going to invest in the kids. I'm going to, I am going to take time to talk to the Samaritan woman. I'm going to take time to talk to the Syrophoenician woman and to these people that live on the other, the Gentile side of the lake. Jesus says, I'm going to do that. He, he models that for us, this care and this concern. And he, you know, he dealt with so many people who were sick. And he healed them. And that healing was temporary. But it was, a, it was a down payment. It was a foretaste of eternal healing. Right? Jesus says, let me show you what I You're concerned about that issue? The blindness, being lame? He says, let me, let me heal. I mean, it's like we forget what he can do. And then, of course, the real issue is the issue of our sin. It's the root cause of all of it. We might think, I, I can solve it. I can keep the law. Just give me the rules, God, and I'll obey them. And I'll, I'll work off the debt. I can do it. And Jesus says, no. There's only one worthy. There's only one king and priest. Jesus says, trust me. And he dies for our sin, and he rose from the dead lest there be any confusion as to what he can do. He rose from the dead. And yeah, you're having a tough time at work. I know it. We're mourning this week. This untimely loss, it's hard. I know you got problems with school. It's the end of the semester. Maybe the grades didn't come out the way you wanted. We got political drama, right? We got enough political drama to last us a lifetime already. We continue to deal with the ongoing issue with coronavirus. There's so much. In marriages, I know there are issues with kids. I know there are issues. They're struggling. Singles looking to date. There's struggles there. I know it's the real deal, those those threats. But in all of this, what do we learn from 2 Kings 15, 1-22? In all this, He is worthy of our faith. So trust Him. Trust Him today. Maybe you never have. Maybe, maybe today is the first day that you finally say, you know what? I'm willing to confess my sin and to turn from it and to turn to Jesus in faith and to say, I can't do it. Lord Jesus, I accept your death on my behalf. I put my faith in your resurrection. Lord, forgive me. And Lord, now you are my king and my priest. Lead me. If, if you've never done that, and you want to become a follower of Jesus, please come talk to us. We'd love to help you take that, that first step of becoming a disciple of Jesus. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, guess what? Those steps don't necessarily get easier, do they? We know in the ups and downs, sometimes it's hard. We need to remind one another. He is worthy of our faith. Again, my friend Eric Little, back in China in 37, he's in this situation. And again, he'd written, Fear reigns in all their hearts. The Japanese had invaded. Everything was going crazy. But really, those crises are what? An opportunity for faith. And so Little was traveling. Like, they couldn't even travel. It's such a long story. But they had to, like, march through this crazy long trek to get to this particular place. And they kept hitting on these small towns. And in some of the small towns, they found believers. This is in China in the 1930s, uh, late 1930s. 
And uh, in one particular town, they get there, and, and there's some believers there, and they're saying, you know what we've been doing? Again, the Japanese army is raiding. There's Chinese soldiers that are messing around doing bad stuff as well. People are, you know, it's, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of economic uncertainty. And uh, the local believers said, well, what we've been doing in this little town is we've been inviting everybody in town to come to these tea and talks. And we've just been getting together, and we literally have tea, and we'll just talk about whatever's on people's minds. This is what Little says about experiencing one of those moments. He says, The place was alive. People were coming all the time for talks on all subjects, but most of all for talks on spiritual matters. For, they said, their hearts were thirsty. That crisis, that's a moment for you to grow in your faith. He said, this trip showed me the vitality there was in this church and the wide influence it was having on the neighborhood. Yeah, everything was burning. And the hearts were full of fear. But there was an opportunity to learn that he alone is worthy of our faith. We need to know that today. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us trust him. Lord, we thank you for... 2 Kings 15, verses 1 to 22, we thank you for what, uh, Lord, it seems like crazy days, um, especially there in the northern kingdom. But Lord, we, we see this, this baseline of your faithfulness on display through Uzziah's long reign and failure and through the shocking assassinations and, and the rest that unfolded in the northern kingdom. Lord, we see your faithfulness to Jehu and that promise that he would have four sons reign after him. But Lord, we also see your faithfulness in executing judgment against Jehu's line for that, for that sin. And Lord, we, we recognize that we face a variety of challenges and threats in our daily life. And Lord, we will be tempted some days to think we have figured it out and we deserve more. Lord, we'll get too big for our britches. We will we'll push. And in faith and self, Lord, we will sin against you. Lord, maybe we're just allowing the high places to linger and tolerating worldliness and idolatry in our lives. Lord, maybe, maybe the fact is we know we're facing troubles, but we think we can buy our way out of them. We, we think we can go to another source of provision, and we have forgotten the promises you have made. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray for a reminder this morning that you are the greatest son of David, that you are our great king and priest, that you, that you reign rightly over all this universe and that you have made provision for us by your death and resurrection. And so you are trustworthy. Lord, we ask that you would help us to respond by faith to the trials that we're facing. We pray as we succeed that we would be humble, we would, we would trust you and walk by faith in success. And Lord, when we fail, that we would turn to you in repentance and faith and we would be confident in our status before you because of the cross. Lord, we pray that you would help us in times of mourning. As we mourn this week, we pray that we would, that we would find refuge in your care for us. Lord, you have promised to deliver. Forgive us for doubting and help us to trust you this day, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.